0: And welcome to Hell is for Hyphen. It's for September 2015. I am writer-critic-hawkeye-pierce hyphen, hyphen, at the start of Season 4, Lee Zachariah. And with me, as always, is...
1: Hi there, I'm writer-director-I hyphen, hyphen, like to think of myself as the Elliot Gould version of Trapper. And uh, <laughs> with us this month is...
2: Hi, I'm Sophie Mayer. I'm definitely not Hot Lips Houlihan, so let's go with Radar. Um, I'm a writer-film critic-poet-who-even-knows-what-that-is, hyphen, hyphen, and I am delighted to uh, join you in hell.
0: <laughs> <laughs> and we are quite delighted to have you with us. Now, normally we go straight into the reviews. We're not going to this month. This month is a little different. Um, Paul, I believe you have some news.
1: I do. There's uh, long-time listeners of the podcast uh, may pick that my patter is usually I usually throw to our very special guest. I haven't mentioned the words "very special guest" because Sophie is not a guest. What? <gasps> what? Sophie Shock. is the new co-host of Hell. Wait, Five. what? <laughs> How
0: are we only hearing about this now, Paul?
1: No one told me this. <laughs> Sorry, Sophie. I'm just stopping, I'm dropping you right in there. Really, <laughs> <No,
2: it's> fine.
1: <laughs> so hang on. Are you as, as I am departing? The oh, podcast, you are. I thought
0: you were booting me off. Right after
1: five and a half years, five it's time for me to say goodbye.
0: Good lord. Now, why? Why is this? I mean, are you are you just sick of me? What's <laughs> What's happened?
1: <laughs> well, but yeah. I or well, maybe we'll have a chat off air about this, Sophie. But um, no, look, I mean, I've, I've done this for five and a half years and, you know, 65-odd episodes, and I've loved it. And it's been such a pleasure. And, you know, and Lee, you're pretty much my best friend. And it's been, you know, an amazing opportunity to just, you know, discover so many filmmakers and talk about film with so many wonderful people, you know, including both of our part- real-life partners and, you know, and my best friend. And But there comes a point where, I've you know I'm a filmmaker and I promised myself I'd make a feature film by the time I turned 40. I turned 40 this year and it's time to you know shit or get off the pot as they say. Um, so I I I I'm kind of directing more of my energies in that in that direction. Um, I've decided that making a film while I'm 40 still counts. Um, it does. Absolutely. So- so, yeah, um, I'm currently uh, in pre-production, I guess, writing uh, um, our, uh, f- my partner and I's first feature film. So, yeah, it's pretty frightening and exciting and I'm sad to leave because I've had such a great time. But, yeah, uh, it's all good things. And plus I like to, you know, I like to kind of get out on top. I feel like we've had a really, really great, you know, I've mm. personally had a really great run
0: well yeah i mean if it wasn't uh, if wasn 't for the fact that I am very eager to see you make more films, um I would be protesting this but uh, I do want to see you make this feature you 've been talking about for so long so uh yes this is uh this is very exciting is there another there is another reason for the timing of this announcement though isn 't there there is and, and you know- and you were very clever about this. <laughs> Uh, because I have some news as well, and my news is that I am moving to London. Uh, this, is some- this is something that's been on the Boo. cards for, uh, for a while. <laughs> and by the way, sorry to any family and friends who are hearing about this for the first time on this show. Um, but yeah, it's, um, this is something uh, my wife and I have been talking about for a while, and she's over there at the moment setting us up, and I am about to head over. And so when Paul sprung the news a few months ago, the obvious thing was, well, the new co-host should be someone from the UK. And hello, Sophie.
2: <laughs> pip, pip. <Google> chat. <laughs> Hooray!
0: Just what I was expecting. That's the, that's the kind of English patter I was... <laughs>
2: I, can wor- I can work on my Dick Van Dyke for next
0: time, <laughs> That'd be good. So, well, I didn't. A few months ago, I didn't know many film critics from the UK and now I know quite a few because I spent weeks reading as many as I could and then I made a short list of the ones I really liked and then tracked down podcasts that they'd appeared on so I could hear, you know, whether they were as good vocally as they were in print and then I made another short list of the ones who were great at both and I thought... Look, hyphenates is a massive commitment. It's going to take a while for me to find someone to say yes. And the first person I asked said yes. So (laughs) this has worked out brilliantly because, yes, Sophie, you were at the top of that that list. And uh, after we had, you know, we've chatted a lot via email, we had a massive Skype session talking about film and... I'm looking forward to seeing how this goes, because uh, it's it's probably time to reinvent it a bit and shake it up and not try to replicate the thing that, you know, when we started it five years ago, it was a way of taking the conversations that Paul and I had every day and just turning them into a show. And now Hyphenitz has become its own thing. I thought, you know, let's not try to replicate that. Let's, let's reinvent it, keep the, the basic structure the same, but you know, I mean, the show is reinvented with every guest, so every month it's a different thing, and so this isn't going to be a million miles away from what we do anyway. So, um and you won't have to listen to two dudes
1: every month, you know. This That's, is true. Yes,
2: it's going to be fifty percent lady. Yes, <laughs> but possibly even sixty-six point six bar percent lady, depending on one <laughs> of the guests we've got lined up. This is true. Two thousand and sixteen as well.
0: Yeah, and uh, and by the way, I should say if you've ever wondered how far in advance we plan these episodes. We had the rest of the year basically confirmed before Paul told me that he was leaving and Paul told me months ago. So we do like the long game. So there's going to be this sort of weird transition where the show is sort of going to be a London-Melbourne hybrid with guests (laughs) in, in Australia and then I'm sort of going to go to London within the next few episodes and our guests are still going to be in Australia. But we think... Uh, I think the first UK guest with three people in the UK is probably going to be January. So yeah, there'll be a few months of transitioning, but, uh, but we'll get there soon.
1: But it sounds good. New year, new, you know, all UK edition. I'm thinking yeah. of this as like a law and order type thing. You know, your law and, we've been law and order, you know, US now. Now it's law and order UK. You know? <laughs> Hell is for hyphen, it's UK edition. You wouldn't think. I
2: I think you should franchise it. You know.
1: Absolutely.
0: I I love that all the metaphors we can think of for this are all TV metaphors, like with Mash earlier. Uh, It's like like, this is a film show. It's still a film show, right? (laughs) Hey, my Mash reference was cinematic. That's true. That's true.
2: (laughs) I I did have the Scooby Doo kind of dream transition noise in my head as you were talking about. (laughs) Which could be related to Wayne's World.
1: Yes. Sorry.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Awesome. Well, why don't we why don't we talk some film? Sure, awesome. why not? No, I want to I want to talk about television a little while. <laughs> That's another podcast. <laughs> so thematically, I think uh, it's appropriate that the first film we should talk about from September 2015, according to Australian release dates, anyway, is London Road.
1: <laughs> they couldn't have planned
0: it any better. <laughs> yeah, Th- thematically, only the title. Uh, I, I should I should point out only the title um, well, until we all start singing at least this film is incredible it's, it, it started life as a as a national theater play. It, it took a real life event there were, there were murders taking place around this road called London Road, and they took interviews with the people on the street and turned it into a musical using their words almost of verbatim and Aside from uh, the arbor i can 't think of a film that's done it in in this in a way that's so cinematic there was a point pretty early on where i i basically just started weeping in the cinema because of how great it was and how wow. inventive it was i was just i was knocked over by it
2: yeah i i saw the stage play mm-hmm. um no 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 and uh also <laughs> the film and they They are really different from each other. So when I saw the film, I had a bit of cognitive dissonance going, it's not the play, and the play was so brilliant. The play had over 70 characters played by a small group of actors. Mm -hmm. Um, The actors on stage were wearing headsets, so they were actually listening to the interviews and then singing them while listening to them. So there was this amazing sense of liveness. But obviously to make a film, um, Rufus Norris had to make some decisions about, for example, creating a central character um, played by the brilliant Olivia Colman, who just makes you cry by mm. being. Mm. Yeah. Um, yeah, you know, she's just, she's so perfect in it, isn't she? Because you just yeah. buy it, you buy the realism of it from her expressions and her performances, and you know that she can deliver comedy, but also this incredibly moving story of, of everydayness. Mm. Um, and that's part of what's really unique about it. You know, there have been everyday-ish musicals by people like Jacques Demy, and I was thinking about his, his musical about Strike while I was watching this, mm. but that verbatim thing is unique, and then combining it with a very naturalistic performance style and very heightened choreography by Javier de Frutos, who worked on the stage production, it is a pretty mind-boggling film,
0: yeah, and it's so inventive in its format. I was prepared for it not to be inventive in its message. like,
2: mm.
0: And yet it's not a murder mystery and it's not about a community coming together, although it is. It's such a clever and damning film, it, like showing this community at war with a killer and the girls who were killed essentially become the victim of, of both, both groups. I think it's an absolute masterpiece. And I'm, I'm sorry I didn't get to see the, the stage production. I've seen every... NT Live uh, that gets broadcast in Australian cinemas, but this one uh, didn't didn't quite make it, so um, I'll have to make do with the film. Well, this month also saw The Martian, uh, Ridley Scott's latest film, with Matt Damon playing an astronaut stranded on Mars. Now, this hasn't come out in the UK yet. No. No. Well, Paul, you and I have seen this. Mm-hmm. Ridley Scott's tightest film in years. Now,
1: I'm... Yeah, I'm one of these people that became Ridley Scott and agnostic mm. it's several decades ago. Like I've always been of the belief he peaked after those three first incredible movies and, you know, every once in a while there was a, a spike like Thelma and Louise, you know, or perhaps Black Hawk Down, which I've not seen in a long time. My 26-year-old self really enjoyed it, but my 26-year-old self was a lot less politically aware. So maybe I'll have to revisit that one day. But, you know, um, but mostly I think Ridley Scott films are kind of – Beautiful-looking but bloated, dramatically uninvolving affairs that that, um, always seem to take themselves way too seriously. So imagine my surprise when The Martian comes along and it's full of vitality and it's playful and it's got this beautiful, diverse cast and an incredibly engaging science fiction story and sweet, relatable characters. I mean, they're all archetypes, but you've got a towering Inferno-level cast here. Like, mm. beyond Damon and four there's everyone from Jeff Daniels to Kristen Wiig to Donald Glover to Jessica Chastain, Michael Pena, Kate Mara. Like, it's insane. Mm. And I had so much fun with this film. This is one of my favourite studio films of the year. Wow. Yeah. I just, I just had a ball. Like I was just so engrossed in the situation. I, I loved the solutions. Like, again, I'm no scientist, but it seemed to play very much within its rules mm. of um, that the film sets. And, you know, I'm not into... I'm not into pedantry. On you know, as there was a, a Guardian headline today: space experts question the accuracy of a science fiction film. If you're <laughs> questioning the accuracy of fiction, uh, you're in trouble. Yeah, everything was just so loose and 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 relatable. It almost didn't feel like a Ridley Scott film. It looks like a Ridley Scott film. Like it's freaking beautiful. Mm. Um, but yeah, I just I just had such a great time
0: with this. I think like I I, I enjoy it aesthetically. I think it's it's brilliantly constructed Uh, it's beautiful to look at and i love all the that the film is so grounded in a practical scientific world but i actually feel like it's the humor and the character moments that undo it so so much of it's contrived i don't know i feel like a lot of people are ignorant for the sake of the audience like there are experts who are ignorant so that things can be explained to them for the audience. And I I feel that for a film that works so hard to sell us on a reality, it's undone by all the elements that really don't.
1: Yeah, like I will agree with you in that function that it is very, con- it, like, there are moments that feel very constructed. Mm. Like, you know, there's even a moment where Jeff Daniels' and goes, "Well, that'll work unless something bad happens," and then boom, the next scene something bad happens. You know, <laughs> yeah. like like it does. There are moments in the film that make you very aware you're watching a movie, which yeah, as you say, is slightly at odds with the lived-in feel of the characters. Yeah. And by the way, like, is like, and occasionally to-
0: this self-referential there's a lord of the rings reference in front of sean bean there's a marvel reference in front fi- in front of michael Pena. yes
1: yes are they doing that on purpose or is it just- I, like i just i don't know that's the thing i thought the whole thing was si- I, I it's absolutely on purpose um mm-hmm. like you know they'd say you know project elrond and the next shot is of sean bean <laughs> <laughs> you know like it's absolutely on purpose and that's one of the things i loved about it i love that ridley's having fun i didn't think he could Mm. Um, at this point in his career. Like, I mean, so I do agree that there were moments where the script felt very constructed, but I thought the pros hugely outweigh those pro- those cons.
0: Mm. Which brings us to a second chance. Suzanne Beer's latest film has finally come out in Australia
1: and, or
0: just in Melbourne, I think. It's getting a very, very limited run. I'm not sure, but... I the- think the
1: Australian centre of the moving image are getting it. Mm. That's probably about it,
0: yeah. This is, I think, easily one of her best films. I think Beer is an absolute master at making a f- films that are full of twists and turns, but they're all rooted in character instead of improbable plot machinations. Her twists and turns are never unlikely narrative tricks that work intellectually. Uh, they're always revelations based on character that, like the best endings, feel both inevitable and unexpected, and each one hits you in the guts. Yeah, I just loved it. Now, this came out a while ago in the UK, didn't it?
2: It came out earlier this year. She had a a double release uh, of this film and Serena, which was Mm. her second American film with uh, Jennifer Lawrence and Bradley Cooper, and they're very, very, very different films. Mm -hmm. But Serena, obviously, with the higher-profile cast, I think scored a lot of the attention, and this film... What I found really interesting was it was really marketed as Scandi-noir. Here are, I think we can say there are two cops investigating initially a crime scene and it was really sold as a, a dark Scandi-noir, but actually it's more like Ibsen or something. Yeah. As you say, it's a, it's a moral conundrum drama in which there's no exciting blood splatter, police work or autistic sweaters or <laughs> they were sliding back into television again. Um, and... <laughs> With, you know, with a very prominent TV actor, Nikolai Costa-Waldau, uh, Jamie Lannister, as he's known. Mm. Um, but also with the brilliant Ulrich Thompson, who was Christian in Festen, the celebration. Hmm. Um, and so there's this dogma legacy that I think describes the film better than Scandi Noir does. It's a, it's a very realist, gritty, thoughtful drama that does the beer... about masculinity the thing that she's always so interested in how do men interact with each other what does it mean when men have feelings Mm. and at the same time I think you are rightly takes it to another level in terms of how the story is functioning and also how it's short it was just absolutely stunning to watch some of those small moments of attention to um The the way that we notice things when we're in the grip of powerful emotions, so the way that the trees look, the snow, the natural landscape, this really dissociated gaze, just, I thought, was another level up, even from After the Wedding, which is a film that just has me in floods of tears. (laughs) Um, Or uh, In a Better World, which also had uh, Ulrich Thompson in it.
0: Yeah. She just pushes into extreme close-ups. There's almost one extreme close-up every scene that will show you something either a mundane aesthetic detail to something that will be a future memory for a character, like something, you know, they're going to remember when they think back on this day.
2: Um, yeah. There's uh, a huge amount of attention to people's eyes as mm-hmm. well, which suggests actors who really have a great relationship with the director and with the cinematographer, Michael Sneeman as well. I'm um, working with some really young actors as well and able to capture their faces so expressively that it looks really simple and seamless but that speaks to a, a lot of hard work and trust on set I think
1: mm. it's interesting cuz she's been doing that for that sort of thing for a while there's films that have an int- films of hers that have an intense focus on hands and there's films of hers that have intense focus on eyes and there's fil- yeah it's interesting she she has that quality where she'll certain films of hers will be very obsessed with a certain anatomical kind of focus, I guess. Yeah.
2: Yeah, they take these huge social issues, but instead of making issue films, which is the way that In a Better World often gets described, they really put those issues at the heart of a family and then pay attention to ha- the impact that they have on people's bodies. And I don't really mm. think there's another another filmmaker who's who's doing that in the drama. Oh,
1: that's true. That's controversial.
2: true. Controversial.
1: Yeah, it's definitely a unique quality of hers. Mm.
2: Yeah. her American films have not been as successful for sure um, mm. the remake of brothers things we lost in the fire yeah. uh i think struggled in that transition into a different social climate whereas you know her danish films are so much about the way in which these very ostensibly socialist countries are being tested by immigration, by poverty, by social difference and social justice. And mm. and the end of a second chance, I think, is really telling with that. Because in Hollywood, that ending would never fly. Mm. Even in Indie Hollywood, it's an unsentimental ending, but it is hopeful. And I think it really comes out of the Danish social contract and loosely Scandinavian socialism and trying to think with, well, how do we make everyone fit in our society. How do we deal with immigration? How do we deal with social justice, politics and class? And there's, there's it's a really interesting moment because you're expecting this confrontation and instead it's just very quiet. But as as Lee was saying, it's very real. It really comes out of the characters and it's really rewarding, surprisingly rewarding given how grueling the film has been
0: Mm. and cute yes Hmm.
2: yes yeah i do wonder if the original pitch for this one i don't know if you guys have or had athena not the greek goddess but the card shop in the states there was this shop in the uk in the 80s which sold cards and posters and one of their best-selling posters was a very very well-muscled topless man holding a very small baby and i'm just wondering if that was the pitch for (laughs) (laughs) nicholas costa waldau Holds baby. (laughs) (laughs) looks at baby. Can can we make it a trilogy? The other really popular image was a girl in a tennis outfit scratching her bum. So that's less Suzanne Beer for me. Mm. Mm.
0: That's more Michael Bay, I think. That one I've seen. Michael Bay, (laughs) So Sophie, please tell us, actually, you know what? If Sophie's the new host, Paul, that makes you the guest. Oh my God. So Paul... Yeah. Who have you picked for your, let me hear it one last time. Hell is, I'm just,
1: Hell is for Hyphenates, Filmmaker of the Month.
0: Sophie, you're under no obligation to do that voice, but you're welcome to it.
2: I want to do it. You're then,
0: uh,
1: excellent. Have a crack right now.
2: Let's hear it. All right. Hell is for Hyphenates, Filmmaker of the Month.
1: I, yeah. love it. I love
2: it. Too Bane. Too Bane. <laughs> or not Bane oh, enough. not Bane
0: enough. This would be too Bane, but
1: last is a This is going to turn into the trip if this... Yeah, that's true. <laughs>
0: uh, so where were we? Oh, yes. Who are we going to talk about this one? Well,
1: I, I've got nothing prepared. I didn't know I was going to be the guest until I showed up. <laughs> Kidding. I have chosen horror maestro George Andrew Romero. Incredible. Do you know how many people, not that
0: we told a lot of people that you were picking the filmmaker, but amongst the very few people who knew, anyone who knew you was shocked, myself included. (laughs) We had a short list of, well, we've done Tarantino, so it's got to be Scorsese, right? Of course he's going to pick Scorsese. Romero,
1: everyone was surprised by this. What? Well, I guess I discovered him in about for real in about 2008 because uh, the Melbourne International Film Festival had a retrospective of his, of his films. Romero came out here to introduce Diary of the Dead and uh, it's it was that thing So I'd already seen Night of the Living Dead and Dawn and maybe I'd seen Day and that was kind of about it. And this retrospective I discovered stuff i'd never seen before like uh like jack's wife and knight riders and a couple of other things and i just realized that there was a whole other career this guy had had that we never hear about all we ever hear about is the zombies he created zombies this thing and you know obviously we'll discuss that seismic impact he had on 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 cinema but Mm. i found that yeah there's so much more to this guy and there's sort of a thread that runs through and i just became fascinated and as a filmmaker myself. He's, he's actually the filmmaker that I most relate to. Like, he's not necessarily my favourite filmmaker. He's probably my favourite horror filmmaker. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but as far as his as far as being willfully independent, as far as having a social conscience running through all of his films, as far as being you know kind of like a bit of a tragic lefty, all this sort of stuff, I've he's the one I most relate to, and I think his his career is a great template of a filmmaker of of like myself who wishes to work in genre. I, I love that you know a lot of his films are made on these tiny tiny budgets and. You know, he's he's kind of for the most part resisted the siren song of studios and just kind of done his own thing. I mean, I've made a short. I made a short film called Talkback uh, a few years ago for the ABCs of Death competition. That uh, is essentially uh, a talkback, like a right-wing talkback shock jock whose voice makes people kill anyone who's different.
0: Mm. And
1: that to me felt like a Romero idea. You know. <laughs> Yeah. So even stuff I've made has been influenced by him, and yeah. So like, I feel like it's one of those things that's not upfront because again, he's not one of the you know, not the Tarantino, the Scorsese, the sort of Paul Thomas Anderson, the Coen brothers, the filmmakers I sort of obsess over frequently. But he's the one whose aesthetic I can most kind of relate to, and I think if you if you dig a little deeper and scratch me a little bit, you'll see. Oh, of course, he loves Romero.
0: Yeah. Look, I've always thought Romero was fantastic until we started rewatching his films. I don't think I quite realized how great he was. This has been quite a revelation. Um I've he's gone he's risen even further in my estimation now. Awesome, so great to hear. <laughs> yeah, especially Night of the Living Dead. Um his, his first film, the the iconic uh, 1968 film that sort of introduced zombies into the mainstream. It's so fresh, and it, it feels it feels kind of like Orson Welles doing War of the Worlds, like telling this
2: mm-hmm. global
0: epidemic from a small corner. He's got a, a, a heroic black man in the lead, and and right from the get go, that feels fresh because you feel like you've got this um, undercurrent of, of, of the simmering racial tensions from in the '60s that are playing into this whole us-versus-them narrative, which just adds to the horror. You know, it doesn't... This isn't happening instead of the horror. This is the horror. And I think that's why he's, you know, right right off the bat, he's, he's
1: doing something that no-one else is doing. It's weird, because this was such a group effort, and... Uh, uh romero was the driving force behind it but screenwriter john russo and some of the production team and even the actors had such input in what was going on like the the role of ben was originally written for like kind of like a southern white kind of truck driver type and oh, yeah. basically dwayne jones for reasons that are clearly evident by for anyone who watches the film was the best actor to audition mm. and they saw him and they're like okay this is the guy and all of a sudden it became a collaboration of creating who Ben was and and Dwayne Jones had a lot to do with that. But the film opens in a completely uncharacteristic, like it opens in daylight, in wide open spaces and this is a horror film and, you know, horror films to this point were dark and stormy nights and, you know, we we weren't, In that period yet, and all of a sudden you got bang, you've got this, you know, this, we're we're driving to a cemetery in the middle of the day. What could possibly go wrong? Mm. And all of a sudden there's this guy in the distance. And it's this sort of threat by accumulation. It's this ratcheting up the suspense by the fact that every time you look into the distance, every time you look out a window, there are more of them. And that's the thing that first made an impression on me. But there is so much in this film that's subversive or, like, between this sort of, you know, heroic, intelligent, forceful African-American lead to, you know, the sort of the racial tension that's sort of going on, like the fact that the old white guy and the upset white girl are kind of distrustful of him, the fact, you know, she slaps him at one point and hits her, you know, kind of knocks her out. And it's like this is all super confronting stuff for 1968. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, even for some audiences... Today, you know, but there's also the fact that you've got a little girl eating her own mother, yeah. you know, and you know, to a certain extent, it was the right film at the right time. You know, it was 1968, it was all that sort of political upheaval. It's all sort of there was the year that you know, MLK and RFK were both assassinated, and it was just this perfect storm of elements. Like, Romero and co. were doing something completely different as, as a horror film, but it also seemed just the right time for the public to kind of hook into it. And, of course, it became a phenomenon. A phenomenon that, I think, caught everybody by surprise. You know, you can't overstate the influence of this film in terms of not only introducing the concept of the flesh-eating zombie into the mainstream, but also a grittier, more realistic, or, you know, for want of a better word, realistic form of horror, and sort of adding that verite element, which had never really been added before. There are moments in this where, in terms of the cinematography and, like, the ferocity of some of the fights and things like that that are so confronting, even now. Mm. And it, it just rockets along. And to me, it's almost like the definitive example of what independent cinema can do, in terms of do things, cast people, take risks that big-money studio stuff can't. Like, mm. this is what indie cinema should do. And I just feel like, yeah, I feel like it's it's a paragon of independent cinema and, and yeah, a game-changer in so many ways. I mean, like, the whole 70s new wave of horror, I don't think it would be an overstatement to say the whole 70s new wave of horror wouldn't have happened without Night of the Living Dead.
2: Mm. I found it really interesting that Romero's Original idea for the first film that he wanted to make, um, and I think this is a great loss to cinematic history, was a Bergman esque film about medieval teenagers called Wine of the Fawn. Yes! Oh, wow.
1: <laughs>
2: but that's Wine, W H I N E. <laughs> Maybe it's just because I was watching it close to thinking about London Road, but watching Night of the Living Dead, that opening sequence, and then the arguments in the house, I was really thinking about Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf from 1966. <clears throat> Haskell Wexler's use of black and white, that attempt to bring that staginess of the locked room drama into a film form that feels like verite, that's really doing some kind of social documentation. So that the, the zombie threat outside becomes this kind of absurdist dramatic conceit, like the rhinoceros in R- Rhinoceros, or this the setup in Who's Afraid of Virginia Wolf? And it's that dramatic potential that the, the film is. Mining. These people aren't just all going to work it out and get along. The characters mm. aren't just going to have conflicts in order to generate story moments. It's really about social conflicts, class conflicts and about how people don't always act in their best interests You're in the moment where the girl's sweater catches as she's trying to get out of the truck. And there's this tension, you know, she really wants to save her sweater, but she's in a truck that's about to blow up that's surrounded by zombies. So those, those little moments of, mm-hmm. of observation that I think, as you say, come out of doing something really independently and allowing something to unfold on set. A lot of what happens in that film is obviously quite spontaneous, arising from production conditions from from as you said the casting onwards so that real meaning of independent cinema that then i think is not just influential for independent horror cinema but independent american cinema in general, I, you know, let's not forget that Scorsese got his start with Roger Corman.
1: Absolutely, completely agree. And and there's moments like the those spontaneous moments that happen in relationships or have dynamics between characters, like where you feel the temperature go up. Like there's that point where Harry goes back downstairs to the to um to his wife, and he's complaining about you know it's like I'm right, damn it. And there's a point she there's something you don't expect. She turns to him and says, yeah, because that's most important, isn't it? That you're right. And it's like, ooh, okay, that is not the Im- the response I expected, and as you say, it becomes it ventures into this "Who's Afraid of Virginia Wolf" territory all of a sudden that hadn't been glimpsed to this point. It's like, oh, now we've got this dynamic, and it's so yeah, it's just kind of electric. And yeah, and so they thought, okay, should we replicate this? Should we do another horror film? They considered doing a horror anthology at one point, which is interesting because it's like that almost flags creep show to come. Mm-hmm. But Romero was pretty, as you say, he had other ideas. Like, you know, he wanted to, before Night of the Living Dead, he was thinking about Bergmanesque teenager films. And so he kind of wanted to shift away from that. And there was a bit of push-pull within the company, and eventually they settled on a a, a kind of a subgenre that was quite popular at the time. This sort of counterculture, youth, sort of 20-something, where do we go from here, you know, now that we've we've sort of challenged the social norms, where do we fit in or how do we sort of move forward with relationships? And out of that came a film called There's Always Vanilla, Mm. which for me is, and probably it's fair to say for most uh, Romero fans, is the least of his films. As harmonious as the Night of the Living Dead shoot was, this was... Equally as fractious, mm. it was just everybody was pulling in different directions. Romero himself can't stand it; he's said bluntly he remembers little of it and cares even less. But the thing is, it's not awful. It's it's I mean, very much of its time. It's very much, very much a time capsule, but also, you know, it's sort of stylistically interesting, and there are funny moments, and it's it, kind of it's it you know. But it but it's all about it's interesting because it's all about a person grappling. With what to do next. Mm. It, it
0: does feel like every filmmaker of this period had one of these weird post flower child experimental films in them. Like Agnes Varda made Lion's Love, and De Palma made The Wedding Party, and Altman and Mazursky had a bunch amongst them. Mm. And it's like everyone has to get that out of their system in the, uh, in the 70s. Yeah. And, and, yeah,
1: yeah, it's like Altman had Brewster McLeod, and yeah, yeah. But you can
2: also really see him building that the the weird suburban element that is going to come out in uh, jack's wife and martin
1: definitely yeah like the, this
2: kind of Peyton place pre-lynchian sexy suburbia behind lace curtains but he just hadn't worked out how to fuse that with the supernatural element yet which in night of the living dead is very rural mm. um and it's you know with uh jack's wife or season of the witch uh the american title but he sees how he can put those together almost riffing on american bewitched yes Mm. like he takes a leaf out of popular american tv and says well what happens if i fuse that with my young man discontented old woman you know story Mm. yeah it's a sketch he's he's working out the two elements uh, how to build in that that social satire that then shows up in the later Dead films as well.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah there's definitely a consciousness for finding its way out. And I think, I mean, it's, it's telling that this is the, um, this is one of only two films that he didn't write. This was somebody else's screenplay. So I, yeah, I think there's, I think, I think in terms of visuals and in terms of setting and in terms of, you know, like, I I think this is, they've kind of tried to write what they know a little bit too, the fact that it's set in a, you know, commercial advertising agency in Pittsburgh when they were a commercial advertising agency in Pittsburgh and sort of trying to mine that experience. But the company, they were kind of known as Image 10, who had made Night of the Living Dead and There's Always Vanilla. There's Always Vanilla pretty much put paid to that company. And so there was only Romero and a handful of other people that came out of that. But his next film, 1972, the original title was Jack's Wife. It's on DVD as Season of the Witch, and it was released pretty poorly in the early 70s, um, cut down majorly as Hungry Wives, or as the trailer says, Hungry Wives.
2: <laughs>
1: <laughs> um, and okay, I think
2: the, distri- the distributors wanted him to turn it into a porn film.
1: Yes, which is insane. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> it's seeing it's a feminist film,
2: like it's
1: yes. and it's quite you watch it now. And I like I saw this at that festival in 2008, and I was blown away because one of this is the other reason I wanted to do wanted to talk about Romero on, on, on this podcast was that everybody knows him for the zombie stuff, mm. and I wanted to shine a light on the stuff that's not zombies because I think there's so much great stuff there that has nothing to do with zombies that people don't know about and this is one of them and i find it interesting that each one of these films that he kind of makes all relate to a certain subgenre very definable subgenre of horror Uh, jack's wife is his witchcraft movie martin is his vampire movie the crazies is his pandemic movie bruiser is his slasher movie but they're all very rooted in character and this social conscience and a kind of social microscope, I guess. And yeah. And I think this is the, this is the one where it's like, this is the film where he first kind of assumes control. Like he's no longer part of a collective. This is the first George Romero movie. Mm. And they wrote it for a $250,000 budget. They only got $90,000 in the end to make this film. So it's super rough in terms of technique, but boy, does it make up for it in some pretty confronting scenes and, uh, Confrontations. I mean, it opens with this most incredible dream sequence, yeah, which is which pushes so many buttons. Like, you know, like you're looking at sort of a lost child. You're looking at emancipation and enslavement. You're looking at abuse. You know, like it, it ends with it being locked in a kennel. Like, by the way, this was the
0: year seventy two was the year that the Equal Rights Amendment uh, passed Congress in the USA. Right. So well, oh, I yeah. thought that was particularly interesting, um, given, you know, it's, it's such an emotionally complex story about women ageing. I mean, it almost feels like if it was made today, you know, Ken Lonergan would be making this film. Yeah, right.
1: <laughs> <laughs> it's a sort of... Um, but yeah, he's Jill Soloway. Yeah. Yes, yeah. yeah. yeah.
2: It's... It's, I mean, the, and those early meetings with, with Margot, the woman who's the witch, uh, do you feel like a feminist consciousness-raising group that they're you know it totally passes the best shell test they're not just talking about men they're talking about power they're talking about family traditions uh and inheritance they're talking about politics in a really quiet way and it's only when glenn shows up uh in that first scene that things are the first sort of meeting scene that things start getting a bit weird
1: Mm, yeah yeah, he um, he,
2: he's clearly cast as a you know an asshole and an anti-hero by the film and quite a typical figure I think that shows up a lot in Romero's films of this very bullish guy, mm. um, like flyboy in uh, Dawn of the Dead who's always making the wrong decision. because <laughs> yes. you know, like like the husband and father in uh, Night of the Living Dead. All he wants to be is right.
0: Yes. Yeah.
2: And everyone always calls them out and they're like, no, you're going to get us all killed. You're going to turn everyone into zombies. You're going to die. You're going to drive this woman crazy. And they just proceed and then they get punished, which is you know, used and punished, which I kind of enjoy.
1: <laughs> <laughs> but so much of this is so raw and confronting, and and does stuff that I think like has dis- like discusses issues that films these days don't discuss, mm. you know. And then, and and it's not because oh we've discussed them and we're on top of them. No, it's issues that are still really raw, open nerves in society regarding the way we view women and, and women's place in society. And and that beautiful ending um, that is that is both a statement of complete cool empowerment, and then immediately undercut by the way she's referred to by another character. And it's one of the most beautifully elegant final scenes I've seen in a long time.
0: And that's why I think he's such a successful horror filmmaker. Is the horror, you know, like I was saying before, never, never comes from the supernatural. There's almost no supernatural, like literal supernatural in this film. And, like, you look at his next film, The Crazies, and he's obviously so much... So much interested in the human reaction. It's not, this isn't a film about the people with the disease. It's about how human bureaucracy and nature react in such a situation. And there's some really sophisticated stuff in here and really detailed. Like everyone has such a rich backstory and their own unique emotional reaction. Um, but there, there's so much imagery that's, you know, quite reminiscent of what's happening at the time. Like the self immolation is reminiscent of that, that famous yeah. image of the monk, or the
1: line, it's a police action. Mm. You know, oh, God, there's the... a lot of direct reference to the crazies is the one where it becomes the most implicit. Like Night of the Living Dead, it sort of happens and it's sort of in the background. And you know, you got the rednecks mm. shooting at the end and the great, you know, chilling photo montage. But the crazies is the one that's like institutions are shit. Uh, the the military just make things worse. Um, look at what's happening in the news. We're gonna ref- we're gonna have direct visual and 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 dialogue references to it and puts it right on front street. It's mm. like, this is the country we live in right now, and we need to, you know, maybe it's a good idea to have this vir- virus and break out of this fucking loop that we're all in, because we're all going straight to hell. Mm. And again, incredibly confronting scenes. Like, I mean, the film opens with two kids get up in the middle of the night and walk in, mm. hearing a noise in the living room, and their father is smashing everything up, and they go to run to their mother to see what's going on, and their mother's dead. Mm. I mean, from these. And it's this whole thing too, the family. Like, Romero's families are always really unstable and always end up being destroyed in some way or another, which is is really interesting. He doesn't seem to put faith in the family or in institutions. More so makeshift families.
0: Yeah.
2: I think that's one of the big differences between Romero and Stephen King, who's someone, obviously, he's a huge fan. They've worked together... Um, on Creepshow and, and on the dark half, that King is a sentimentalist. He still believes in the goodness of the family, the inherent soundness of the principle of the American small town. And even though his books often have unsettling endings, there's always some kind of redemption. He believes in the individual hero. And watching The Crazies made me think about Under the Dome. Mm. um which recently adapted on tv and is all is not about an epidemic but again is a locked town mystery in which also the army and the government are satirized as being incompetent and it's coming from a more recent you know iraq the illegal invasions of iraq and afghanistan but it seems like it's looking back at the crazies and saying yes everything that george romero was saying which at the time was seen as conspiracy theory it's you know, sort of parallax view stuff. Mm. Now we're having that reported in our media, and and Romero was a visionary about that. But also, he's much more deeply pessimistic about these institutional principles of American life, as you say, the family, uh, in particular. And kids are always very anarchic uh, in his films in ways that mm. are really, really interesting. In in the crazies, um, Nikki, the daughter in Jack's wife, and then Martin. Uh, I think, is a really classic one in, in Martin. Mm. But it really does become about, you know, the kids can, can save us, but only if they're willing to commit to their kind of difficult path of anarchy. And a, a very sort of 60s belief that the, the young people will save us from all these sclerotic adult institutions. And that obsession with also unpacking the media that starts a little bit in Night of the Living Dead, and then by Dawn of the Dead is, is full-blown. And you have all those inserts of talking heads all these like incredible dudes with hair mansplaining what zombies are. (laughs) Um, And in the, you know, in the, in the crazies, and the media is totally complicit in that. And then in Martin, the radio DJ is really complicit in, and I'm, I'm moving ahead of film here. Yes. In uh, in building up Martin's sense of himself. And then that coda at the end of the film of all the callers saying, you know, we miss the count. We want more um, things that satisfy our vicarious bloodlust mm-hmm. and romero's films always walk that line don't they they're like i love making films that where you know as with night of the living dead one of his cast members was a meat packer and brought innards and brains straight <laughs> from the slaughterhouse to use packing uh, the zombies prosthetics um he lo- he loves that and he loves the realism of that and at the same time he's you know like michael haneke saying to the audience why are you watching this stuff? <laughs> Look at yourselves, ask, what what are you getting out of it? Mm. And, we're the problem. <laughs> yeah, we're, we're the problem. You're the ones perpetuating it. Every zombie movie you watch means another zombie movie remake by Zack Snyder is going to get made, people. <laughs> Cut yourselves off, cold turkey. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, and The End of Martin does that really, almost schematically, but really movingly as well, because you've got really... I just completely against my own intention, and vampires are my jam. Yeah. You know, zombies, uh, two of my best friends are huge zombologists, zombie walk, zombie wedding, zombie brains, everything. But vampires to me are the pure classic cinematic antiheroes heroes mm. and, and also cinematic powers. And Martin is so brilliant at that the way it conjures vampire vision. Uh, all those close-ups, the cut into to the car crusher, the child's toy. You really start thinking about what would it be like to see you with these extra senses. So you really sympathise with this sort of awful character who can't even really articulate himself. Mm. And at the end, you do feel slightly bereft
1: mm. yeah. of this
2: it's... murdering rapist.
1: Yeah, I'll just say he, after the crazies, which was a somewhat bigger budget film. It was only $270,000, and, um, but that was, the, that was more than the previous three films combined. Uh, he, it, it did better but not quite well enough to sustain another feature. So he kind of worked in television making sports documentaries for four years and then came back with Martin, which to this day is one of, if not the most favourite of Romero's films for him. And it was a film they made for $80,000. I think from here and possibly about his next five films are kind of peak Romero for me. Like, I think Night of the Living Dead is his best film, but I feel like this is his best period. And it's no coincidence that his... Uh, firstly his cinematographer Michael Gornick comes on board because before this he'd shot uh, uh, Romero had shot most of his films himself but most tellingly makeup artist and sometime actor Tom Savini comes on board and this is sort of the formation and also his uh, his girlfriend soon to be his wife uh, Christine Forrest comes on board as well and it's suddenly this solidification of the of, the, of Team Romero uh, with Martin and it's such again getting the vampire myth and making it really confronting. And, I mean, it starts off, as you say, it starts off with this kid raping and murdering this woman. And it's like, how the fuck are we going to get into this guy's head? You know. But then all of a sudden we realise this situation's been imposed upon him. He's been told from a young age that he's a vampire and he's got to be watched and he's got to be killed. And it's almost that thing about conditioning somebody into believing that they're evil you know what does that do to a psyche mm. and he's constantly confused like he's constantly he's disproving and proving himself in the same scene like he's like you know see like there's no magic he's you know eating cloves of garlic and throwing away crucifix and then the next second a girl asks him how old he is and he tells her straight up he's 84. You know, and it's who
2: hasn't told a girl that? <laughs> <laughs> it's a
1: classic. It's a classic line.
2: It's a classic pickup line, <laughs> and then, but then it gets into this really interesting late seventies American obsession about rationality mm. and the unreal as well. This is the the heart of the New Age movement. The, the late 70s coming out of California and Martin's constantly asserting rationality and science. And scientists are really interesting figures in Romero's films. The mm. scientist is really the only redeemable figure in, in the crazies, um, who's on the side of the town mm. and who gets shot down by, by the army and the government, which we know is kind of how the US <laughs> government works. And yeah. it Martin, Martin is the rationalist in this film. So it, it's also debunking that romantic stereotype of the vampire this is you know close to the time of the remake of nosferatu and what what's also in twilight is that kind of class romanticism that the reason the vampire is a romantic figure is they're an aristocrat Mm. you know martin Mm. is a worker he's working class and he's living in a small town in pennsylvania there's nothing erotic about him whatsoever he's not hyper articulate like Dracula is the film makes a point of that a number of times and it even explores whether in quite I think quite a sensitive way whether he might have a cognitive disability yes yes absolutely mm. um so this is very different from Team Edward you know yeah. <laughs> there's, there's none of that romance you may, we could say he's even maybe the first really American vampire oh I
1: like that that's great and and that's the thing. He's looking at... This is a film that comes very much out of the economic downturn of the late 1970s in America. Romero is living in Pittsburgh, watching steel mills and... Factories close all around him, and the town slip into economic depression, and the, and that is all around them in the film. Like it's detailed in the sequence where his uh, his cousin Martin's cousin picks him up from the train station, and walks. The first thing they walk through is this big. There's this shot from below, and you're looking at this huge gleaming building as they walk past, and the city of Pittsburgh is in front of them. And as they keep walking, they walk into progressively more depressed neighborhoods. And the place get, and there's again there's junkyards, and the place just gets worse and worse and worse, and it's almost like he's gradually deglamorizing the entire thing it's like this ain't this ain't your castles and fog vampire movie, this is something which he then makes fun of in other sequences uh, later on, which I think is really great, constantly you know putting up that thing of like there's no magic and the-
2: all those dream sequences which yes. The black and white dream sequences, which really made me think about a girl walks home alone at night. And I thought, come on, Anna Lily at has definitely seen Martin. Yeah, absolutely. Because she's playing with those black and white textures. And also the erosism, I mean, she flips around to look at it from the point of view of the female vampire. But that idea of the eroticism of the myth um, and the way it has to do with this earlier in- era of cinema and the way that we look at black and white film and we're so seduced by it it's so funny mm-hmm. i think in the romero film it's really witty yeah
0: now i don't want to blow your minds but i have a theory that <gasps> dawn of the dead is like a metaphor for consumerism what um, i know i know i haven't looked it up i'm pretty sure i'm the first to think this no, It's, <laughs> it's, it's...
2: <laughs> oh, malls are like cathedrals right
0: yeah <laughs> but it's almost, it's, I mean, that's almost like a rote statement. It's like the first thing you learn at um, film preschool is Dawn of the Dead is a metaphor for consumerism. Dawn of the Dead, you know. And it, but it's even now, even with that so ingrained in culture, it's, so, it's still so alarming to see how deftly Romero handles this idea. Like, it's not a subtle film, but I think subtle can be overrated. Like, it's deft, it's clever, and it, it perfectly complements the horror. And the fact that it can be so so ingrained in culture almost to the point of parody and then you watch it again and it's still fresh and it's still you know, its message is still completely undiluted.
1: It says a lot about how great this film is. And God, does it draw you in. Like, it absolutely, again, it just rockets along. Like, mm. I remember writing notes for this film and I just stopped at some point and I just realised I didn't write anything for about half an hour because <laughs> I was just so engrossed in what was going on. Yeah. And I love that it, it, that consumerism thing actually finds its way into other less obvious things. Like, obviously, you know, there's the whole zombies, you know, just shuffling around the mall. Distracted by shiny trinkets. But the scene where the yokels are out shooting zombies... It's played like a beer commercial. Like, there's this music over it, there's close-ups of the beer, they're cracking them open and cheering and then turning around and shooting zombies. Like,
2: (laughs) We should say that Romero's first ever filmmaking was beer commercials. Exactly. So he knows knows whereof he's speaking there. Man
1: knows his way around a beer commercial. Yeah. And again, it's this whole breakdown, like, this whole thing, like, Romero's thread throughout the zombie films is, like, people – could survive this they could either if not stop it they could at least you know survive if they just work together Mm. but nobody ever works together everyone's always in you know their their petty personal interests are always tearing them apart but this film does dawn of the dead is interesting and the other thing i love about the dead movies is they're also stylistically different like you know you got this sort of black and white verite original and this is like pop art like, Dawn of the Dead is comic book. It's got that crazy paint blood, which is kind of an accident because Savini ordered this other blood that they couldn't get and they got this blood from 3M, which they thought would be fine and looked like red paint That still bugs Savini to this day. <laughs> but it's actually, like, it actually heightens the comic book feel of the whole thing. And again, this, this is another film that pushed the envelope further in terms of cinematic gore and in terms of... Let Savini off the leash, and this was kind of the film that made his rep. But you know, it had this beautiful epic kind of feel to it.
2: I love the way that they just decide, you know, we're going to make the characters escape in a helicopter. A, so we can have helicopter shots of <laughs> zombies on the rampage across rural America, and B, so we can chop a zombie's head off with a razor blade. <laughs> you
0: know,
2: the, that's really for, form and content working together beautifully, isn't it? You know, and the helicopter then becomes a trope in for for later films, but it's so economical as indie cinema it's like we're going to use the helicopter in the narrative but we can then use it as a rationale to have these great copter shots yeah. and then we're going to use it as a killing machine yeah. fantastic
1: for a zombie with an unusually large head
2: <laughs> more gore more gore.
1: but there's character again there's character interplay in this film that just wasn't in other horror films at that point you know, like, mm. out, outside of something like Polanski's Rosemary's Baby. Like, only at that level. At low-budget horror, you wouldn't get this kind of character interplay happening. Um, um, what a
2: romance yeah. between, the, between the cops. And it's, it's totally yes. unashamed. Absolutely. They love it. Oh, it's my hard. God. Yes. <laughs> I mean, and it's very clearly pitched. It's across a racial divide. It's, they're from two different um, units. They have to team up. And it's unashamed. They are the other couple in the film.
1: absolutely love each other. Like, the point... I mean, there is the point where he's he's giving his little silent eulogy to Roger over his grave and pops a champagne cork. Yeah. And kind of jizzes (laughs) on it. The thing I've always loved about Romero films, too, is they're always so very inclusive. Like, you know, women quite often play, you know strong decisive roles um you know gay characters aren't demonized or marginalized you know they're often thrown like they're often included without a second thought you go to something like survival of the dead you know it just sort of happens that one of the soldiers is a lesbian you know and i love that like he's and he's always been
0: about that you know well that's what that's what surprised me about uh, his next film night riders in 81 is that there is a gay character in there who doesn't
1: he doesn't get punished, as these characters tended to do at Or time. made Or made fun of or marginalised. I mean, no, you know, there's, gets, Savini's gets, dickish character has a go, but he's a sure. go at everybody. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah, exactly. That scene around the campfire is really beautiful. But, mm. yeah, Night Riders in 1981, three years later after Dawn of the Dead. I've got a lot of time for this film, mm. and I this was the film at the retrospective that really turned me on to him. And it was just like, this great unwieldy, sprawling epic of a thing, mm. I think it says a lot about who Romero is. Yeah. I think this is as close to a personal statement as he's ever put. And I think all of his films are personal in some way, but this is the one. And again, along with Martin, this is one of his very favourite films. And I think it's – and he seemed to have a great time making it and everyone was very collegial. And, but I think it, it's a very much a kind of a mission statement of who he is or at least how he sees himself, but it's also very critical because i think he very much sees himself as the ed harris figure yeah. but with all the you know idealism and arrogance that that entails he's very
0: self-aware isn't he like he's,
1: Absolutely. i
0: mean it's a film about the commercialization of things it's about money ruining everything and it really feels like the fallout from being screwed out of night of the living dead money like i don't know if that's true but it certainly feels like a watching it is that cuz he got really really boned on that that deal where you know the he lost the copyright for it and so lost all the money he could have made from it. And it's about obsession, but it's also about purity versus money. And uh, yeah, it feels like that's what he's commenting on in his own career.
2: Yeah, Yeah, But it's also this great non-Hollywood portrait of filmmaking that parallels it with the American carny tradition. Mm, So rather than going, oh, it comes from European theatre or opera or it's this totally exclusive Californian gold rush form, he he really situates it in, this is a carnival. Filmmaking is a carnival. It should be local, it should be raw. For sure you're going to have these politics and when money comes in it's going to cause these problems. Mm. But it, you know, like freaks there's uh, something really about the relationship between cinema and the fairground and the travelling carnival troupe Mm. that, as you say, feels really autobiographical, but also it's a big statement for him about, this is my history of cinema, you know, Mm. it doesn't, it's not like Charlie Chaplin in European theatre, it's coming out of carnies and fairground rides and things that creak and go bump in the night.
1: Or exploitation cinema.
2: Out of exploitation cinema that comes itself out of the haunted house and out mm. of, you know, fairgrounds were some of the first places that films were shown. And you would go and look as much at the technology and as much at the spectacle uh, and the barker who was standing there calling for you to come and watch film of yourself uh, as you would at the film itself. And mm. and that's a real, you know, American cinema tradition is that it started in the carnival grounds.
1: Yeah. mm and I think he very much feels like, particularly by this point, he's got his solidified team going. And I think, with his, I think he wanted his sets to be a kind of a utopia. Like, this is kind of, all right, this is what filmmaking is. It's a bunch of friends who, you know, who have a common goal and we want to do things right and we don't want to sell out. We're not in it for the money, we're in it for the art. And this is, you know, but we all have a good time together. And I think that this is the kind of independent utopia he wanted for his film company, mm. and again being very self-aware about being the self-appointed visionary, he's not always right. He's not always, you know, and and sometimes doesn't always know what's best for the group. And yeah, I, I think I feel this is such a key film to understanding who George Romero is.
2: Yeah. I was just going to add, it's a really funny gloss on Easy Rider as well. These mm. lawless rebels without a cause who ride motorcycles cycles in, pre- in the last decade of American cinema. Well, you guys are pretending to be knights.
1: <laughs> 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 so we're just going to put it on Front Street. We're wearing knight armour on motorbikes. Yeah, knight like
2: armour a... on motorbikes. And That's like, really you doing, guys. And and
1: some pretty, I mean, uh, just one last thing, some amazing stunt work in this film too. Yeah.
2: Yes yeah. solid.
0: And that opening reveal is one of the greatest ever. That was <laughs> yes. genius.
1: And plus we haven't mentioned the lead role is Ed Harris. Yes. It was like his second yeah. movie. And he's incredible. He's like Ed Harris right out of the box. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so intense.
0: Like just from minute one, bang. No assembly required. No.
1: So we've mentioned that. Romero and, and uh, Stephen King have a bit of a mutual admiration society going, mm. and Rome- and King actually King and his wife actually have a cameo in Night Riders, which is pretty amusing. Yeah, but then they take it; they team up for the anthology horror film Creepshow, which is based on their mutual love of EC comics like Tales of the Crypt and Vault of Horror and these sort of lurid, incredibly lurid horror comics. Mm. And I think this is as pure a comic book movie than has ever been made. Hmm. Yeah. It's it's, you know, it's got this amazing lighting and this amazing kind of, you know, comic book framing and they're, they're just having complete fun. I mean, they're moral tales of sort, but this is kind of just the two of them goofing off, essentially. But it's, but it's a really fun time. And can I
0: just say, Stephen King's <laughs> performance in this might be my favourite <laughs> performance of all
1: time. <laughs> Meteor, like yes. Is it, like apparently Romero's direction to King was act like the coyote in the Roadrunner thing
0: <laughs> I mean Cletus the slack George Yorkel has got to be based on this <laughs> on Geordie Verrill oh <laughs> uh, it's incredible King just he like, like he doesn't die
1: wondering let's just say that yeah
0: <laughs> no it is a fun film I've got a lot of time for creep show.
1: It's pretty great. And, you know, it was his biggest budget thing to that point, his first studio release. Although it was made independently, it was distributed by Warner's and was quite a big hit. Uh, his biggest hit since Dawn of the Dead and, mm. and probably his biggest domestic hit to that point, which gave him the collateral to make his third zombie film. And by this point, he was sort of set on making one each decade to reflect the times. Mm. And so he went into 1985's Day of the Dead with an epic sort of view to make what he wanted to be the gone with the wind of zombie films and he had a seven million dollar budget lined up the problem was if if to get the seven million dollar budget he'd have to cut some of the gore and make it r-rated he didn't want to do that the other choice was to go unrated keep the gore in and the budget gets halved and this is what's happened uh so he had to quickly kind of rewrite it into a bit of a a kind of a chamber piece of sorts, a three and a half million dollar, you know, zombie apocalypse film. is that ninety percent of which is in an underground bunker. What results is something that I didn't really get into the first time I saw it, but by this time, this is like the third or fourth time I've seen it. To me, it feels almost Tarantino esque.
0: Hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: It's like this is how like early Tarantino would make a zombie film, I feel like. Like like the violence and the gore are extreme, but it's mainly these characters in this pressure cooker situation arguing. I don't know, I have more and more time for this film every time I watch it. <laughs> It's a va- it's a microcosm of a society that values military force over science. It bumps up the inventive kills. I mean, the, the Savini's work in this film is just off the charts, brilliant. Yeah. Like some of Romero's films are incredibly bleak. Like Martin, for mine is one of, is like early in Yoritu bleak, bleak. Like it's <laughs> just like holy crap. And Day of the Dead as well has this feel. You get to the end of it, it's like this is the plague we deserve.
2: I think there's something about Bob as well that the zombie character the sort of tame zombie which is a great (laughs) twist who is like the inverse of martin you know that martin is smarter than he's letting on and he stands for you know society's underestimation of of who he is but bob is like martin for real you know everyone thinks he's smarter than he really is they want more out of him than he really is and I don't really know where I'm going with this now, but (laughs) maybe just because John Ampers is in both films, it feels like there's this real resonance between those two characters. And again, Bob is, he's not really an anti-hero, but you do, the film does make him worm his way into your sympathies, which is not something that's happened with any of the zombies previously. Part of the point has been that they are a faceless mass who lose independent cognition they lose character but here we have one who has a bit of memory who has a bit of ability and at the same time he's being mocked by the scientists as oh well he's just like all humans he's just a sheep we just tell him what to do so it's like this big statement on what it is to be human and Bob is sort of trying to be human more human than some of the humans in some way mm.
1: Yeah, to so go get
2: Stephen King and sentimentalist for a second.
1: Yeah, and he's one of the few characters, and as we'll see in uh, his next film, um, he's one of the few characters who displays human traits. It's like human traits don't make him more evil, because it's usually the case in Romero's films that the more human traits someone shows, the more hu- the more evil they become. <laughs> Um, Bub is one of the few that's not The, 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 the kind of reverse engineers that And yeah, is a slight glimmer of hope And in all the Ted films It seems like whenever they make Whenever they, one of these makeshift families makes a home for themselves They have a gun rack in the room <laughs> On of the course. wall
2: Yes, but like that know. Was America
1: Exactly. It's like this, this very, again, this canny observation of like, yeah, you know, the American nuclear family has a, has a gun rack. I feel like at times Bub evolves a little too quickly. Like, I get the sense memory thing. What I don't get is he starts having emotions for the dead doctor. I sort of found that a bit, hmm. But, you know, we won't hold that too far against him.
2: That's a sort of classic Frankenstein motif, isn't it? Mm. Yeah. Sort of classic horror motif, and it leads us quite nicely into monkey shines and the question of science experiments that have feelings. Yes, mm.
1: yes, and and this uh, monkey who Ella, who's given injections to make her more i guess more human and of course becomes more evil and establishes a telepathic link with her gentleman in a wheelchair who's been hit by a car and made in uh, made a quadriplegic i really uh, this is a really entertaining film uh, look i'm always a sucker for a monkey in things yes you are <laughs> i'm just gonna say that right up front but it's like again it's like there, there's points there's a through line in this too like I mean, this was adapted from a novel. I, I believe this is the first Romero film that was adapted from, from another work. Mm-hmm. Um, other than Creepshow, I mean, Creepshow is an original screenplay. But you've got moments like, you know, the, the lab animals kind of, when they get their revenge towards the end, it's almost like the zombies again. It's almost this, you know, mm-hmm. rising up against... And this is a film where science is not a great thing. This is, this is a film where science is being perverted and being, um, being twisted. And a little bit of Hitchcock with the overprotective mother as well.
2: Yeah. Mm. Um, I also, it gave me demon seed feelings. Right. If you think about the monkey as, as the computer, mm-hmm. they're both stories about, like, what happens when humans try to make things that are near human or humanoid. Um, in one case, with a, with a zoological simulacrum that's placed to human in one case with a technological simulacrum and this jealousy seems to be a real problem for both monkeys and computers. <laughs> I, d- I don't know why that is why we project okay. jealousy. I mean, obviously it's a very dramatic emotion. Um, I think absolutely there's psycho in there and this idea that everyone around the main character has to be killed off and cleared away out of this jealous relationship. But it's, something made me think about that late seventies period of totally off the wall domestic mm. horror films as well, that yeah. this was maybe a film out of its time.
1: Yeah, right. There's it, it, this sort of con- concept, I guess, of imprinting, isn't there? Like like they've imprinted on their human subject and it's, it's yeah. like, now I'm obsessed with you and this is, we, we, our relationship is symbiotic and if anybody gets in the way of that, they're dead.
2: Yeah, mm. but also a sympathetic representation of a character with a disability. Yes. Still incredibly rare.
1: Yeah, and particularly at looking at the rage, you know, and yeah. like, and that you know, because often those portrayals are softened and kind of, and this is a guy who's just feeling cheated and feeling he's re-
2: he's really got a monkey on his back. <laughs>
1: yes, literally.
2: Literally, I wonder if that's where the idea started. <laughs> Again, such a '70s expression, like, man, you got a monkey on your back.
0: That, There's something very satisfying about the fact that his next film, uh, 1990's Two Evil Eyes, was a film he made with his good friend, Dario Argento, uh, especially given we talked about Argento last month. So that's a very, very, very satisfying uh, squaring of that circle.
2: Should have mentioned that Argento was the script consultant on Dawn of the Dead as well. And I think wrote the music.
1: Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. And was one of the, and uh, released it in, in Europe as well and was a co-producer. And, yeah, he, he was basically the driving force for getting Dawn of the Dead made. We haven't discussed many horror filmmakers on this show and that's kind of another reason why I wanted to discuss Romero. But, I mean, I think we've done Argento and Cronenberg. But, you know, you throw a whole lot, a bunch of filmmakers. I don't know what happened at the end of the 80s. The 70s and 80s, or well, basically from Night of the Living Dead to the end of the 80s was such a golden, a, like, a new golden age of horror. I don't know what happened post-1990, but everyone was just suddenly working at half their powers. And this is kind of, Two Evil Eyes feels a bit endemic of this. Like, the Argento uh, section has lots of crazy batshit stuff, but it's complete nonsense. And the Romero chapter is, I think, possibly his most heavy-handed work. Like, there's a shot at the end with money with bloods being splattered all over it. You know, and it's kind of like, yeah, I know you're against capitalism, and I get it, and I'm on board with you, but it, that's a really obvious image, and it feels like a telly movie. Like I didn't hate it, like I, I thought it was fine, but it just felt like it felt like Romero making an 80s telly movie. Well,
2: maybe that saturation of video nasties that happened during the 80s raised the stakes so much, and that was never really Romero's idiom. Mm-hmm. So he's working after a real ramping up of what was possible in the horror film and what was desirable in the horror film, maybe. So this is the era of films like society. So you'd think he would be mm. getting in on some of that political black humour. But instead, this one felt very, yeah, like chapters of an Edgar Allan Poe telly series. Yeah. Mm.
1: Yeah, it's very little cinematic about it. And that's the thing, and and a lot of Romero's films are deceptively cinematic, you know? Um, They're really, really... You know, he's got a really strong visual sense. Well, it's funny you should say that, because I think his
0: next film, The Dark Half in 93, Stephen King adaptation... There is a moment in this film. I think he's such an underrated visual director because the shot when the landlady and the two cops come into the apartment to discover the dead body is a masterpiece of, like, choreography and character. And it's... I would rate it up there with Spielberg's best shot, Construction.
1: Wow. Yeah, I I think this is definitely his most... Possibly the most technically proficient film. Yeah, it, it has this feeling of, whoa, okay, this is a studio picture. And, you know, he had... He had some troubles on it, and had some troubles with Timothy Hutton, and and all that sort of thing, and, and was pretty kind of, you know, further soured on the studio on studio filmmaking. But other than, I think, The Dark Half just suffers from being a Stephen King property mm. than a Romero property like it has that King thing of not really being able to stick the ending and becoming a little too abstract because the first half of this film is so engaging and he's got like a brilliant car I mean you got you know an Oscar winner in Tim Hutton an Oscar nominee in Amy Madigan Mrs. Ed Harris mm. keeping it in that family as well and there's some really uh, really great suspense and, and and creepy images like I mean God when they carve into his head and you've got the twin you know sort of Brain eye thing looking out at him. Yeah, but yeah, I feel like you know, there's there's a lot of great stuff in here. about, you know, the duality of humans and the creative process, and and what that you know, what suppressing a certain part of you can do to you, and and I think there's two. I think there's a part of resonance for Romero and someone who's always wanted to get away from horror but kept being led back in this Thad Beaumont yeah. George Stark duality. But yeah, I feel like the, the dark half is a film that's almost great but not not quite.
2: Mm. It's like it, it hasn't quite brought its two halves together. Yes! Film is, it's like it's too Tad Bowman at some moments and not quite George Stark... Uh, Richard Stark, not George Stark. Sorry. Oh, no, it is
1: George Stark, because Richard Stark... It
2: is George Stark, Stark. yeah, right. Um, it's torn between what it wants to be. It's a literary adaptation at a time when King is starting to have a reputation as someone who's considered a literary writer and also someone who's even more pulpy work makes for brilliant uh, film adaptations like Stand By Me. Mm. So it's mm. aiming for that more mainstream market that King himself is also aiming for at this point. This is about the same time as It, right? Which was huge. Mm. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Right. But at the same time, it really wants to get into what I think you know, we could call the Fight Club aspect of it. And it doesn't quite find the language for that, that very literary conceit of, at first you don't really know... How these two personalities, personas are connected, and it's much more ambiguous in the novel. Mm. Um, and it manifests through writing, and it doesn't quite have that shining thing, uh, and you know, what could, of making the psychodrama of writing mm. the center of the film. Mm. Which which it is for the book. It's really a book about writing and about what goes on in a writer's head. It kind of literalizes it and it's you, I felt like I wanted a bit more from that, but that's yes. partially because I'm a huge fan of Stephen King mm. of, of, of this era, and I wanted that fight clubbiness. For one of a, I'm sure there's a best phrase, Bergman persona ishness. Ambiguity, ambivalence. (laughs) (laughs) But it just goes for the pulpy, like those two halves are so separate. Almost, you know, a second chance, the the Suzanne Beer film we were talking about does it better. There's like this nice bourgeois couple, and then there's this hardcore police work that's all filmed in a very handheld way. It wanted some kind of film language like that.
1: The Dark Half also had some problems being released because it was made at Orion when Orion were being, were going broke. And so it didn't see a cinema in until 1993, but they shot it in over 1990, 1991. So by the time we get to Bruiser, which was released in 2000, Romero hadn't made a feature for nine years. Wow. Wow. And, you know, he sort of flirted with Resident Evil for a while and then that sort of... Uh, didn't re- I mean, it seemed like an obvious kind of project and it was mainly spurned after he was hired to make a commercial for the game in Japan. And people were so impressed by that, they thought, let's take it to a feature and he dismissed it at first and then actively tried to develop it and then it sort of fell, fell apart, which was, again, another souring experience with a studio. So for Bruiser, it also marks an interesting period because he moves someone who is always resolutely made his films in pittsburgh i don't think he made a film outside of pittsburgh in his entire career to this point in the late 1990s he or around this time he moves to canada and all of his films from here on in are made in canada in, in to- Toronto specifically.
2: Although Toronto is the least specific place to make a film, because at least every <laughs> film set in New York yes. is made in Toronto. So, made in Toronto very non-specific, <laughs> would be another
1: way. Of it. <laughs> well, that's, apparently they worked really hard to try and show Toronto off a little bit. Like, they wanted to be clear that this wasn't. And there's shots where they said, people think always think this is a New York, New York skyline, because clearly they've seen the Toronto version of the New York skyline so many Times, but yeah, Bruiser is a really odd duck of a film. It's again, it's it's Romero's other th- other favorite film, strangely. Like Martin, Knight Riders, and Bruiser are his three favorite films, and I think they all have to do with the amount of creative control he had and the amount of like he feels like what was on what was on the page made it to the stage with Bruiser. It's to me, this is his take on on a slasher movie. It's a guy in a mask going around killing people, but. It's rooted in this kind of, again, this anti-capitalist, you know, this guy that's done everything that capitalism has told him to do. Follow the rules, go for the right job, get for the right house, marry the right person, all this sort of thing, and it's all failed him. And it's made him an empty cipher of a man reflected in this empty mask that suddenly, seemingly, perhaps imaginarily, attaches itself to his face, which is a great look, too. It's a creepy fucking face. And then sort of goes around taking revenge on all the people that have wronged him. I think it gets a bit muddled at times, but it's interesting. I still don't know whether it works or not.
0: Well, it's because he's still interested in the human story than the horror, so even when it doesn't work, eh, the moments it doesn't work, it's
1: not working for the right reason. Yeah, yeah, that's the thing. And one of the things I love about Romero is every single one of his films is interesting. Mm. He never comes from a point of, you know, you wouldn't see Romero make him Friday the 13th. No. You know, it's just not like just line a bunch of kids and kill them. Like, it's always human drama and social awareness and some sort of engine driving it. I mean, you know, beyond all that, it's got Peter Stamari quickly flashing his dick at everybody. <laughs> Can't go wrong with that.
2: I was about to say that it's a giant media satire, but I think that, that line has just killed it. <laughs> 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 Pieces, right. Peter... End of.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Well, okay, so he gets back into the Of
1: the Dead films. And this is five years later as well. Five years pass after Bruiser. Bruiser Bruiser makes no effect. Is released direct-to-video in most of the world. Yep. That was Um, when I
0: first saw it. It was just something in the video store. Land of the Dead in 05... I think is is tremendously underrated. This was the original idea for Day of the Dead that he didn't have the budget to do originally. And again, it's still with the humans. It's all about human behaviour. And there's a lot of Iraq War stuff. You know, Dennis Hopper is basically playing Donald Rumsfeld, the most terrifying uh, thing you could ever have in a Romero film. But but I love that the zombies have gotten smarter in each subsequent film, to the point where their intelligence is now a key storyline in Land of the Dead. And I find that I kind of wish that had kept going with the next two films, but I find that so interesting. I really rate Land.
1: I do too. I think this is a, huge, um, a hugely successful film in terms of continuing the world that he had built with the first three films. Like, and I think that's one of the things where the next two films uh, go a little bit wrong is that the next two films always hit reset mm. to a point, whereas this film in the, in the opening two minutes sets up, this is the same world that we've seen in Night, Dawn and Day and now we've ended up here. And, you know, like little, even like little inspired concepts like the sky flowers, the the fireworks, it's a way to dazzle zombies, you know, so humans can get by them. I love the fact that the smart zombie, like essentially a zombie rights activist. Mm. Like he gets angry every time he sees a zombie wronged and killed. He roars. He's like, no. Like it's like, yeah, he's he's a total social activist. I love that he's an African-American zombie, almost mirroring Ben. Yeah. Yeah. In, in in Day. Like, I feel like... Like, I know there's six dead films, but this feels like the fourth and final of this series, you know?
2: Like, the next stage where he should have gone from there would have been making the film from the zombies' perspective.
0: Yeah. yeah.
2: Rather than resetting for a kind of found footage, internet, look how up-to-date with the kids I am.
0: Basically a Planet of the Apes, but with zombies. Like, just progressively right. to make it from their point of view. Yeah. Um, yeah. Look, Diary of the Dead, there, there does seem to be a lot of... I don't know, because his films have always had this sort of Mad Max anti-continuity thing, but it's not until Diary of the Dead that it sort of comes into question. There's been a lot of talk that it's not part, it's not really connected to the Dead series, but I've also seen it written that it's meant to be set on the same day as Night of the Living Dead. Just don't worry about which year it is. It's, it's essentially the same day. It's right. <laughs> <And>,
2: um, <laughs> so in, yeah, in, in the bits of America that do and don't have Wi-Fi. Yeah, yes.
1: fucking banned and fucking logged onto Wi-Fi, dude. <laughs> yeah, right.
2: But yeah, and Well, I can he... tell you in rural America that is not going to happen. <laughs>
0: <laughs> but then, yeah, he goes heavy continuity where Diary of the Dead in 07 and Survival of the Dead in 09 have a very distinct, there's a scene that crosses over. Yeah. Yeah, it's it starts to go for the shared
1: universe idea. So these two films feel very distinct from the other four, which is why I kind of feel like they're not so much two trilogies as the one is one's a quadrilogy and one's a duology. Mm. But like Diary of the Dead I think is the the least successful of the the dead films. I I I feel like Romero is trying to engage with this like I I don't think he's necessarily kind of trying to look up to date. I think he's grappling with with the current state of things Mm -hmm. and not entirely successfully it's kind of the most joyless of the films and not in a way that's like because obviously with you know Romero films have been bleak and you know day is incredibly bleak and this film is just not other than a sequence with an Amish guy which kind of feels like it comes out of nowhere it's not a lot of fun it's just kind of just stuff happening in front of you and the characters aren't very engaging but I do admire that he is trying to engage with the new millennium yeah same. And then we go to Survival of the Dead, which I think is a little bit more successful. I it think is like- a
0: little bit. Although, could, could, what is his obsession with the Irish? <laughs>
2: <laughs>
0: Every one of his films has a lot of oilish characters in them, and now there's a whole township of them just off the coast of America for some reason. Um, it's odd. It's an odd choice, isn't it?
1: Yeah, but uh, I kind of I kind of like the anti-hero lead. I think he's quite charismatic. I like the you know I like the dynamic, and I, I like that this is sort of essentially a, a metaphor for kind of centuries old feuds, like whether it be you know the Middle East, whether it be the Hatfields and McCoys. Mm. You know these these Feuds between humans that go on for so long and just you know distract us from the bigger picture of actually you know kind of moving forward as a species. Yeah, I I, I find it interesting that the three recent dead films their titles seem to him like whereas the the first three films titles night day and dawn are like you know this sort of progression of the dead. Mm. The second the, the second trilogy all seem to kind of flag that the humans are the dead. Hmm. That we're living in the land of the dead. Where the dead, uh, you know, Diary of the Dead. Well, who's recording the diary here? You yeah, know, right. and Survival of the Dead. The humans are looking for an island. They're trying to survive. And it's like now, where the dead? I find that kind of Good kind one. of an interesting little yeah. point.
2: The second trilogy are all made in this era when Zo- Romero's own films have become zombies and been reanimated by new directors. Mm. Mm. Who are, who are making their own takes on Day of the Dead and Dawn of the Dead. And that must be a really strange experience for a living director. Yes, To be, yeah. to be lapped by your own work, especially when you've made films that are about the idea of consumerism and how it reanimates the dead. <laughs> um, and commercialism and, you know, Hollywood becomes one of those big institutions that is kind of making zombies. And I think I, I imagine that he would have quite an odd relationship to them, even though he has writer credits on them seeing these films being made by Tyro Hollywood directors while he is restarting his career in Canada um mm. suffering from some really quite vicious reviews from reviewers who want something quite different from horror, horror films, films that are less thoughtful, more self, self-referential after Scream, less exploitation and more somehow sophisticated in the horror that they deliver. So I know in Survival of the Dead he has a zombie horse. That's, you know, the big development in zombies. <laughs> but again, it's some sort of weird temporal shift, almost a sort of town that's taken out of time there. As you said about... Diary of the Dead, you're meant to imagine it's happening on the same night as, like, Night of the Living Dead. Mm. That's a real fantasy and nostalgia for your own history, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> and someone's like, coming along and remaking your classics from the 70s.
1: Even to the point one of the news, like, you hear the exact news report from Night of the Living Dead in the background, in one of the scenes in Diary of did, and it's like, it's so weird and incongruous. And, and that's the thing. Like, the thing that makes Land great is that it's, he's been saving up these ideas for 20 years. He knows exactly where he wants to take it. He wanted to take it there 20 years ago. Here it is. And now it's like the only – it felt like – it sort of feels like the only money – the only way we're going to give you money to make films is if you make zombie films. We want more dead yeah. films.
0: Yeah, it does feel
1: like And zombies. he's come up – he's had to quarterback You know, two-minute warning these two films on the fly and that's what makes makes me feel so sad for that sort of period in his career. I don't look, I don't think either of them are terrible films. Like in fact, I think I think Survival of the Dead is a perfectly fine midnight movie. I think it's I think it's silly and fun enough to kind of get it over the line and has enough context to make it feel Romero-esque. But after that point, it's like well he hasn't made a film since that's 2009. And, you know, the stuff that keeps getting mentioned is more zombies, more... And I just really want him to kind of break out of that and be able to explore other things. But I don't know if it's going to happen. He's well, kind I, of
2: locked in a room surrounded by zombies.
0: Yeah. yeah exactly. Look, I, I think there's... When I look at uh, watching his films, while all the stuff that's happening in the news at the moment with the Syrian refugees pouring out and the arguments over which countries will take them and which won't. And I think, God, there's... You know, what would Romero do with this, either, either in a Of the Dead film or another film but you know he's so incisive about that social commentary and reflecting ourselves back to us through that prism of genre that god i wish he i wish he'd make another one
1: and this is the thing i feel like he should be in business with bloomhouse like he should be oh, making yeah. you know like bloomhouse give their filmmakers provided they stay under 5 million they give them complete creative control and i feel like that's surely tailor-made for Romero. Like, come on, guys, get in touch. Yeah, because I think he's a voice that's really missed. Mm. Particularly, I think, because I I struggle to think of great modern horror directors. Like, I just feel like so much of it has become about the spectacle of the gore or being clever and meta and self-referential and there's not that observation that, that that and that, that eye for human frailty that, that and complexity that Romero brings. And I think his his aesthetic is sorely missed in modern horror. I agree.
2: Well, hopefully you've put the call out there and Bloomhouse will be listening for <laughs> five minutes and uh, pick up the phone. <laughs> <laughs> you guys have that power, right? Oh yeah. Oh
1: yeah. Yeah,
2: yeah, yeah. yeah. We
1: click, gets it's done. done.
2: well look Night of the Living Dead is now in the permanent collection at the Museum of Modern Art in New York which for a film that started out on the drive-in grindhouse circuit is an incredible turnaround so Mm. I wouldn't count him out yet
1: truly not it's an amazing achievement and an amazing career
2: speaking
0: of an amazing achievement
2: (laughs) (laughs) I knew you
1: were going to do that yeah Yeah. (laughs) set it up knock him down
0: (laughs) That's the show. Paul, thank you. Thank you for the last five and a half years. It's been thank wonderful. you,
1: buddy. It's been a blast. I'm going to, you know, look, I won't say that cramming the films in every month has been easy. <laughs> uh, it's been incredibly difficult a lot of times. Um, you might, you know, if you are list, keen listeners might notice some sizable gaps. But, um, but yeah, it's been tremendous fun to do. And it's just, you know, I mean, what better fun is there than talking films with your best mate? so very true thank you so much for for this for this journey and Sophie it's been lovely to chat to you and uh, you too and enjoy this uh, yeah this this uh, show it's going to be it's going to be awesome I can't wait to listen to it as a listener
0: I hope you enjoy it and Sophie I, yeah I am really looking forward to doing this again next
2: month well it was a rush uh, I don't seem to have blown anyone's brains off or been bitten while doing it so I'm in
0: <laughs> excellent
1: Fantastic. And uh,
2: Paul, huge shoes to fill. You know, do listen and tell me where I'm going wrong.
1: <laughs> I will, although I am, you know, I'm like five foot five. My shoe my, my feet aren't that big.
2: <laughs> I'm gonna leave you guys to the bit where you promise to shoot each other if you become a zombie and <laughs> that kind I, of dawn of the dead romance. I
1: might yeah, I might splew champagne all over Lee's grave, if yeah. that's okay. If I ever become English if I ever
0: get an English accent, man, I want you to promise to shoot me.
2: <laughs> Fair enough.
0: And on that note, we'll see the rest of you next month.
2: <laughs> Keep those dogs back off
0: of those things.